Okay, so I think we can begin by talking about Samir. I was born in, uh, born in Egypt. He studied in France, studied economics in France, where he joined the French Communist Party, where he was very like non-orthodox. Right. He was very critical of the Soviet Union, so he didn't like follow the party line. You know, um, he got his doctorate and um, did his thesis, which would turn out to be like uh, about accumulation okay. in a world scale without yeah. his first book. And, you know, um, after that, he went back to Egypt to work under Nasser. He, he then left to work in Mali. Okay. Uh, in, under the of planning. After that, um, he sort of became more of a, I guess, a journeyman. Uh -huh. Like he would see, uh, he traveled across the world. Um, he was based in, in Dakar. Mm -hmm. You know, um, he was a huge figure in just like third world intellectuals. It mm -hmm. um, formed, he'd be one of the founders for the um, Council for the Development of Social, Social Science Research in Africa, called Israel, mm -hmm. which is based in Dakar. And um, he, he uh, helped found the Third World Forum. Right. So he's been a, a huge part of just like um, Third World intellectuals against imperialism, against uh, against globalization. Um, he was also a huge part of the Porto Alegre right. group. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Um, he's yeah, he's been just like probably one of the most significant intellectuals come out of Africa in the past last century and this century also. He, he's he's massive that you know he's um he's just, just a huge figure in third world social science research. Right. Yeah. And I wonder like um maybe we can talk a little bit too about his interactions with some of the other you know influential thinkers in world systems theory. So like how is he interacting with the group in the dependency theory school and like Emmanuel Wallerstein, Ariki, everybody else. So yeah, for, for so the big three in like world systems is, you know, um, Samir Amin, Wallerstein, uh, and Ariki. And so like, um, they all, although they're like little like differences in the way they think or the way they write, but what's this, for the most part, yeah, they see the world as being, um, the capitalist world system has been divided into nations consisting of core and periphery. While for the most part, so maybe like accepts the basic like principles of unequal exchange, he focused more on production. Like right. um, Ariki was talking about, you know, how for the most part, like um, the Western working class has been neutralized due to the consuming products from right developing an underdeveloped world, but for the most part, production was um, the key aspect for Samir Amin. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he never really like settled in the US, he never right. took a post at, uh, at an American university. Right. So he, he, he wasn't able to um, do a lot of meaningful work because a lot of the work system theories were based in Binghamton. Right. And that's what Wallerstein was based in. So he, um, Amin never really like set a base in the US or in Europe. You know, he was, was a true uh, believer in thought world research and so he was based in Dhaka specifically. Right. Yeah, and, and I'm also interested just in kind of like including the biographical stuff we've talked a little bit about. 
the role he played in Mal. I mean, what was his main focus when he was involved in the government? Um, was he involved in uh, Madiba Keita's government? Mm -hmm. If you read some of his later works, mm -hmm. where he talks about his experiences in, in Egypt and in Mali, he was attempting to help build the national popular model of development. He would go on to criticize those regimes. Well, he recognized like their importance and like the struggles they went through, but would want to criticize people like Nasser or right. Madibuketa for being very um, dependent on state-led development for sort of excluding the popular classes, the peasantry, or just yeah and. So for the most part, he was mostly just, at least in Mali, was, he was mostly just like, um, I guess, like a bureaucrat. Right, okay. But yeah, uh, but, but yeah he'd, he'd have a very, very critical perspective of his time working under those governments. Right. And life. Okay, to get more into like his, his theories and what he was applying. So I think people are sort of familiar with the idea of delinking, yeah. um, but don't really necessarily know more about like his actual theory about global historical materialism and you know how he settles in the debate about the core periphery um and like he didn't believe there was a semi-periphery for example and that i guess contradicts like some of the other people um but let's just begin with with some of what you wrote for like his um short kind of like description which is his belief about like the polarizing of the world system mm -hmm. um into necessarily the core and periphery and kind of how that relates to his belief about the law of value expanding into like the global level outside of nation states. I mean, so capitalism as an inherently polarizing force, meaning like historically, the way capitalism developed was through sort of dividing the world into cooperatory. You know, um, England, the first industrializing country developed by, you know, by imperializing other countries. Mm -hmm. And for him, this historical fact, this is this like, this the way capitalism developed just sort of moves along polarizing lines. And um, his idea of value is actually very, very interesting. So mm -hmm. if you read Marx, you know, Marx's conception of value was bounded by the nation state. Right. And for the most part, this was, quite accurate, at least for his time. Yeah. But um, as imperialism became much more pronounced, uh, production goes global. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, doesn't make sense to talk about value in a nation state. We can talk of value as an international, as something that's, as that's global. Right. And, um, some, I mean, Samir Amin is he, he's very, very critical of people who sort of interpret Marx, but are still sort of based in that, you know, 19th century framework. You know, he always says um, a Marxist is someone who doesn't stay on Marx, someone who begins from Marx and right. continues the work that Marx started. Yeah. I'm sure he thought value was, was global. Conception of core periphery has to has to do with like um, the way accumulation works. Right. Mm -hmm. So in a core country, you know, um, the economy for the most part is actually very, very coherent. Agriculture and industry are complementary, and um, whenever like, like accumulation is when whenever capital accumulates, it's 
it goes back into the economy. Is capitalism in the core is relatively a progressive thing, mm -hmm. at least compared to previous yeah. pre-capitalist mode of production. Right. Um, however, like in the periphery, the economy is disarticulated. You know, um, accumulation is is made is, is for the sole reason of you know the core. This is uh, well, this is uh, this is like his main the main um focus of is the distinction between core and periphery. You know, what does he mean by accumulation on a global scale? I think that sort of relates to his idea of value, mm -hmm. which is that you know that um we can no longer talk about accumulation bounded by initial state, that you know what happens in a global south country is related to um, what happens in the core yeah. that we nation states are not that the actions of state or nation state or actors or actors in nation states are not by themselves actions held in a vacuum right that is the fact that we live in a world system that we have to evaluate these actions of a country or a government by its role or its position in the world system so um take for take for example the the role of the upper class or the role of the bourgeoisie, you know. Um, you know, some people see the upper class or the capitalist class in global South countries, and they will be very critical of them. You know, like these right. are people who are they are parasites, they they seize the state for their own means. But I mean would say, you know, like why is it that this sort of behavior is present across right. almost all periphery countries. Right. This is because the upper classes in those countries serve a function in the world system, which is to help integrate the periphery into the world system to help make the exploitation of the periphery a lot easier for core countries, for the imperialist countries. Well, I think that relates to um, his idea of underdevelopment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he didn't believe that countries were like underdeveloped inherently because of some like backwardness. He believed that underdevelopment was a specific choice, like a policy decision sort of to like force these countries and, and stall their development or, or undermine development um, to integrate them and allow for accumulation into the world system. But yeah, I think that relates to what you're saying of like, that's why he believes there are kind of archaic structures and there's more kind of like autocratic regimes are more likely in in peripheral countries because they allow for capital accumulation and I, I wonder how that relates to his idea of delinking as like a solution to the problem of being you know inherently within the world system and the only purpose of these countries being for capital accumulation so yeah um for him delinking on a basic level is for countries in the periphery to subject their development to domestic popular needs or domestic popular popular forces. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now, you know, uh, lots of peripheries, like like I mentioned, the economies are disarticulated. You know, they are encouraged to uh, subject themselves to globalization, to open their countries up to foreign capital, right. to just to accept their role as as uh, countries that export raw materials or countries that are on the lower end of um, manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And for him, this is this is the dead end. You know, uh, he doesn't believe in the idea of catching up mm -hmm. to 
industrialized countries, it thinks the path towards catching up is blocked. Yeah. And the only way that this country, these countries in the global south, these uh, third countries can hope to sort of remove or move away from that from the station is by the linking. Yeah. And the linking is uh it, it, it just basically means a country internalizing its own development right. by focusing on um, focusing on the needs of its of its popular classes. Now, this is um it's 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 very interesting because you know uh, for the most part in traditional Marxist theory, the working class is the agent of progressive change. Right. Uh -huh. However, you know um, in lots of poor countries, the working class is the minority, right. the minority and the main class, the main progressive class for Amin is the peasantry, agriculture. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's very, very um, interesting to see how he's criticized like orthodox Marxism and also the dominant social, theory, social, like, social development theories in the West. And for him, the linking is not, it's, it's a very, very long and arduous process. Mm -hmm. In fact, it says no country can completely delink from the world system. It's done in, in stages, in, 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 in phases. Mm -hmm. You know, you give the example of China. You know, he says China has only delinked like 70%. And if you look at China, you know, like for the, for, like for the most part, like this is like, uh, national like autonomous model of development. Right. Like they have uh, mechanisms in, in the government that or just like an economy that's only catered to the needs of their of their own um, of their own people. Right. You know it's if you look at the Chinese model of development and the model of development that's been given or that's been um fostered upon the global south, you know, they didn't, China didn't limit itself or uh, limit itself to just exporting raw materials. Right. You know, they uh, went on a whole program of local and local developments. And now that the, that the um, factory house of the, of the world, and right. that, for him, that's what the linking means. And um, he contrasts this, he contrasts China, at least the Chinese model with places like Brazil, yeah. Places like India, in which, for the most part, like those countries are pretty much accepted their role in the global in, in, in the world system. And if you look at China and India, these are very similar, similar countries. You know, uh, they they have a similar population. They're located in a similar area of the world. They 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 border each other. But right. looking at China, China's development compared to to India, it's just completely stark. Like you would, uh, it's very rare to find the sort of slums and the sort of um, poverty you find in India compared to, to China. And a key aspect of this is the Chinese revolution. Right. So the fact that China, the Chinese peasantry have been able to, they were, they were able to you know, seize their own future, they were able to properly embark on a revolutionary path, contrast that with the role, the, the past in that took, which, is, which was you know, to, Put its trust in the national bourgeoisie in the form of Nehru, mm -hmm. in the form of the Indian National Congress. You know, for him, that's the model of development that the global south has gone on. And mm -hmm. it's just 
it's a dead end, you yeah. know. So yeah. and I, maybe also we can talk a little bit about his conception, contrary to this, of Eurocentrism. He came up with the, he came up with the term Eurocentrism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, the dominance of European values and ideas that has made up in a material material uh, foundation. So for him, due to the fact that the world is inherently polarizing and the fact that Europe itself is, at least compared to the rest of the world, relatively more developed, right. Europe was able to see itself, it see its 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 material difference between you know the, the rest of the world and conceptualize an idea of itself as eternally superior or internally um, in, in, as internally better than countries like, places like Africa or even especially the Middle East. And for him, Eurocentrism isn't something that, it's, it's, not, it's not something that's inherent. You know, um, Europe for the most part in comparison to Asia, the Middle East was relatively backwards in the, in, in the um, 14th, 15th century. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you look at, if you compare China, at least um, feudal China to, to England in, during those times, you know, like the difference is just stuck. Like right. China was much more richer, had a, had a much more sophisticated mode of governance. And so for him, Europe in this time could not conceive itself as superior to other cultures. Or superior to either other areas because there wasn't a material foundation in which you could back up that rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But with the advent of capitalism or with the advent of imperialism, this Europe needed an ideology or a system of values in which it could sort of differentiate itself from the rest of the world. And um, it takes us out to example of Christianity, you know. Christianity for the most part, it's not a European religion. It's not, it was founded in the, in the Middle East. And uh, in an attempt to reconcile its superiority with such a, with a, with a religion that's not inherently European, Europe had to sever its ties with the Middle East, its right. ties with the Arab world. It had to um, sort of manufacture a line from ancient Greece all the way to yeah. Christianity. Right. Even though Greece, for the most part, wasn't related to Christianity, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't even particularly Western. Yeah. You know, Greece, for the most part, had a lot of ties with uh, Asian countries like Egypt, mm -hmm. you know, Persia. And so, for the most part, Greece had more influence from the Orient than from the West right. and from Europe. Uh, and this manufacturing of heritage of uh, of history has done a lot as it, it, it's very very noticeable in modern day social sciences you know uh the emphasis on greek philosophy yeah. rather than other sort of philosophy the distinction between the arab world and the european world again these are all fallacies these are right. these this is these are all like modern historical inventions mm -hmm. and um for him to transcend these Inventions to transcend Eurocentrism, you have to resolve the distinction, the division of the world into core and periphery. Because right. in a in a world that's more equal, in a world that's 
that's less uh, in, in in which imperialism is not uh, is not is not a material reality. Europe has no Europe has no base for it to sort of project itself as superior. And for him, this is the true. This is this is what true universalism means. Right. So you know, for the most part, the importance of I mean is that you know he was able to was able to you know put forth a program mm -hmm. for the global south that wasn't determined by the whims of the imperialist nations. You know, it was someone that really believed in the independence of periphery countries and also in the in south-south solidarity. Right. You know, he this is this is represented in, in his participation in a lot of organizations we should um aim to follow his footsteps mm -hmm. you know aim to recognize the struggle as like the struggles in the global in the global south uh where a new form of socialism or a new world will be constructed yeah mm -hmm. uh, he, he he always thought that at least his idea for nepal development was that the challenge to capitalism was going to come from the Weaker areas, the areas in which capitalism isn't completely solidified, and those are in the peripheries. And so, as socialists in whether especially socialists and Marxists in, in the global north, should ensure that they are able to give critical support to movements in the global south that are against imperialism, against capitalism, because in this is in, this is where the new world will be constructed, the new conception of humanity will be constructed. Right. Awesome. Um, maybe the last thing we can say is his, the main books, just like maybe just list them for anybody who is listening and wants to read them. Yeah, so the main one, at least his first big one was Accumulation in the World Scale. Mm -hmm. It's quite yeah. quite dense and mm -hmm. quite difficult to get through, but he's written a lot more, a lot, a lot more simple books like um, On Nepal Development, Imperialism and On Nepal Development. Eurocentrism, which is particularly good, mm. the liberal virus. Um, it's written also some memoirs. Uh, is written. Oh, and then also, of course, the Lincoln, in which puts he has this program of uh, anti-imperialist development. Okay. So that's just some of the works he's written. But he's also written quite a lot in the monthly review. Yeah, you know. Uh, and so, if you're looking for a quick summary of his ideas, his articles in the monthly review are sort of summaries of what he of just what he thinks of his his brand of Marxism, his idea of development. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much. All right.